1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of 150 Years of Obamacare. The book is published by Johns Hopkins University Press this year. The author is Daniel Dawes. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Heath. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you on with this timely, timely book. Uh, Before we get to it, welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of 150 Years of Obamacare, the book is published by Johns Hopkins University Press this year. The author is Daniel Dawes. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Heath. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you on with this timely, timely book. Uh, Before we get to it, as we always do, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. I'm currently the Executive Director of Government Relations, Health Policy and External Affairs at Morehouse School of Medicine here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I serve as a senior advisor to the Satcher Health Leadership Institute and lecture in the Department of Community Health and Preventive Medicine. And before that, I had the opportunity to work on the Hill, um, both in the House and the Senate, and ended up working in the Senate Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, uh, where I got to work on some fascinating health policies around mental health parity, uh, genetic information non discrimination and disability um, policies as well. So fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and all of these experiences so directly contribute to the book. Let's let's talk about it. Um, You know, and and just looking at this book, you'd you'd start by saying, you know, most uh, health scholars track health care reform back to maybe the Truman administration. You go further back than this. Why 150 years, Uh, which is in the title of the book? Uh, What was going on in the middle of the 19th century? that relates to health care reform because I think this is what uh, many people would be surprised by.
0: You know that's a very very good question and I tell you that um, the reason why we chose this title was precisely that point. Too many people think that we've been working on health and health reform for about a hundred years and um, they take a very myopic approach to the Affordable Care Act but in fact we've been working on this for over 150 years and here's why it's because we took disparate Campaigns around mental health, minority health and universal health and brought them under this one umbrella where everyone, every one of these stakeholders had an ownership interest in making sure that the Affordable Care Act, the health reform negotiations were successful. And so when you hear the president, President Obama, when you hear the VP uh, uh, Biden uh, saying that we've been trying this for 100 years, that's simply not the case with this law. We have, in fact, been doing this for more than 150 years. And it does
1: matter. And I can explain that if you are interested. I'm very interested. So so what was on the table, let's say, 150 years ago? What were the this? This is not just an abstraction that you're talking about. You're talking about actual legislation and, and, and federal policy. That was debated about health care reform, even about mental health policy. So maybe you can take us to this sort of specific starting point and and what was going on in Congress. Sure. So let me begin with um, I'll go in chronological order and begin with the mental
0: health reformers. And, um, you know, back in the 1840s, 1850s. You had mental health champions uh, going around the country trying to pass a mental health reform bill and uh, trying to convince Congress to do so. And, you know, every Congress, there would be some success in getting maybe one chamber versus another to pass the bill and um, nothing further. Well, finally, after decades of trying, a schoolteacher by the name of Dorothea Dix was instrumental in getting Congress to pass the bill for the benefit of the indigent insane. And um, when she did so, it went to the president's desk. And at the time, the president was Franklin Pierce. And President Pierce, you would have thought he would have been the most sympathetic president um, on mental health issues in this country, having um, witnessed the tragic death of his firstborn son um, and his wife having um, uh, deteriorated in terms of her mental health um, with clinical depression and anxiety when she witnessed the um, skull of her child split open on this train accident well you know he himself was um, unfortunately he succumbed to addiction um, um, uh, disorders Uh, he was an alcoholic and um, when the bill came to his desk he vetoed the bill which was quite surprising to the mental health reformers at the time and in his veto message he really set the um, policy federal policy of Um, federal government on involvement in human welfare and health service issues for the next hundred years. So there were no mental health um, bills that were in comprehensive mental health reform bills that were introduced at that point. And it wasn't until Truman, when you saw piecemeal legislation coming through around establishing a research institute on this, and you saw that over the next uh, few uh, presidential administrations, just piecemeal legislation around this, until President Carter became president. And he and his wife, uh, actually passed a very comprehensive mental health reform bill two months before the 1980 election. And those that bill actually incorporated principles from the um, uh, bill for the benefit of the indigent insane, which was interesting. So 125 years to the date, they were able to introduce that bill, um, re- pushing for reforms for people who suffer from mental illness in this country. Well, as you can imagine, when President Reagan came in, his administration – Um, set out immediately to dismantling and preventing any further implementation of these mental health reforms. And it wasn't until 25, 30 years um, later um, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act that you now saw those same reforms, many of those reforms in the Carter bill included under Obamacare and actually an expansion of those mental health reforms. So that was one piece of it, which was pretty interesting. So then go closely now to the 1860s. We'll go back to the 1860s. Uh, close to the mental health reformers and their efforts with minority health reformers. And during that time, you know, after slavery, there was a bill called the Freedmen's Bureau Act. And that bill actually had a very comprehensive medical division, comprehensive um, health reform provisions in there to increase access for newly freed people, primarily African-Americans and other vulnerable populations. And the bill was only allowed to... Um, be in operation or it was only implemented for seven years. And after the seventh year, they Congress at that time just did not have the appetite to continue to afford um, African-Americans and others access to health services at the time. And so that program ended during the seventh year. And then when you come to the universal health piece, which is the one where Truman really was um, trying desperately to push. Um, Again, you saw there was an infusion of race and gender into the arguments that prevented that bill and other opportunities um, in terms of comprehensive health reform from expanding. So why 150 years and why do I say President Obama and the VP um, actually have this wrong? And everyone who's been saying we've been trying this for 100 years is because this is so much more comprehensive than just health insurance reform. This is comprehensive health reform because it includes these disparate campaigns and their priorities.
1: Now, you provide this great graphic on page 43 of the book that, that tracks the introduction of health care bills in Congress. I wonder if you'd briefly describe this graphic for us and, and maybe talk a little bit about what it says about the groundwork that had been laid in the 1990s for health care reform that happened in 2010. I You know, I'm particularly interested in, in how a lot of that groundwork was laid by members of the Congressional Black Caucus and their efforts to introduce often failed legislation, but, but uh, proposed legislation nonetheless. So sure. uh, take, us, take us back here because we, I think, are, are also given this impression, you know, that, that um, you know, a lot of this just sort of happened after the Obama election in 2008. Um, what was going on prior to this in the 1990s? Sure, great question. So
0: let me begin and just
1: go back a little bit before that time. There was actually
0: an effort after the Voting Rights Act, as you know, there, uh, we saw the first African Americans um, being elected to Congress post Reconstruction. And at that time, they tried to push policies that would address this minority health crisis. Well, they were only successful with um, a few piecemeal legislation, nothing um, pretty robust. Until the late 70s, it was clear that in order to get Congress to do something, in order to get the administration uh, to do something. They had to commission an external report. And this report was uh, basically the catalyst for getting the Reagan administration in the 1980s to say, we've got to take a look at it. Margaret Heckler at the time, who was Secretary of Health, she recognized that while the overall health of the nation had been improving, the health of different um, racial ethnic minority groups was alarming. And it was actually... Um, Um, uh, contributing to the tremendous cost burden to the country in terms of providing health care. And so she set about with that report in arm. She then decided, you know what, I have enough evidence to commission a task force uh, to look at this and to get the brightest minds in the federal government to come together around this issue. And what they did was develop this landmark report that came out in 1985 that then Said, we've got to do several things. We've got to establish an Office of Minority Health to address the issue. We've got to um, look at um, authorizing grants to do research on this. Well, because that was an executive branch effort, they couldn't really do anything uh, without authorization from Congress. And they wanted to make sure they codified some of those efforts into law. And when, the, um, when Congressman Louis Stokes, who founded the Congressional Black Caucus, was one of the founders, and he founded the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, he worked with Senator Ted Kennedy, um, and, 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 and they worked behind the scenes to create legislation to, to increase um, efforts around health disparities, to address the, in, the uh, increase in health disparities. And what people don't realize is that with, with the George H.W. Bush administration, Uh, There in 1990, these two gentlemen in in the Congress, both Democrats, they worked with Senator Bill Frist, a Republican, of course, from Tennessee, and together they were able to convince the George H.W. Bush administration to um, sign into law the first major minority health bill 120 years um, after Reconstruction. So that was a very, very big deal at the time. And from then, that bill actually led to an investment of one billion dollars. In, in health disparities research, and when that research was done and the um, the, the facts, um, the, the, the research was brought to light, it was apparent that they had to do more. So that actually led to more studies being conducted, which then led to the um, Clinton administration, the uh, um, Bill Clinton administration in um, uh, 2000 actually signing the second minority health bill into law. And that was more comprehensive than the first one that George H.W. Bush did and increased actual Um, expenditures for for research around the issue, for developing programs now, establishing centers of excellence at universities across the nation to uh, comprehensively address this. And that legislation actually then led to the Institute of Medicine's Unequal Treatment Report, a major report at the time that um, showcased where the disparities were most prevalent in healthcare. And actually, um, also led to an annual report by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality to start tracking the disparities, the barriers, the fragmentation in healthcare so that we could develop uh, better solutions to this problem. And that's what that timeline is trying to show, that, you know, it's been a very concerted effort, but it takes, you know, some external push to get folks internally in, in government to then do the right thing um, and, and – and, um, address the issue, and then that actually has led to other external efforts, and then which have led to other internal uh, initiatives to address the effort. So very, very remarkable, I think, in terms of that graph.
1: Now, you write the book, you write some of the book, maybe as a historian would, mm-hmm. uh, but the second half of the book in particular relates to your own experience as an advocate. Yes. How are you involved in the push for health care reform? Uh, and, and were you involved in any of the, the very difficult negotiations and policy compromises that ultimately resulted in the passage of the ACA?
0: So initially, so I worked on the Senate help uh, Committee, as you know, under the leadership of Senator Edward Kennedy. And when we were working on the Mental Health Parity Act, which was a, you know, an insurance reform statute to make sure that uh, mental health benefits were on par with um, surgical Um, And medical benefits. So we wanted to make sure that there was no discrimination against folks who have mental illness versus those with physical illnesses. And when we were working on that law, the strategies that we developed to push it and get it passed were what we used during the health reform negotiation, because we knew when we were working on mental health parity that we just we just knew we had an eye towards the future and we just knew that the next congress and the next administration was going to prioritize health reform comprehensive health reform and so you know while we had never mandated mental health benefits at the time we thought for sure we'd have that opportunity to do so in the next uh, congress so with that said as health reform negotiations were taking place Senator Baucus convened the first hearing um, and invited two former secretaries of health, one from a Democratic administration, one from a uh, Republican administration, to get their ideas on the on the Senate Finance Committee for how they should proceed. And we were elated when Senate, when uh, Secretary uh, Tommy Thompson actually said that we should be addressing disparities among vulnerable groups. We were elated to hear him say that. And that's when it dawned on us that, you know what, what he is pushing and what we think that this um, bill could look like in terms of being comprehensive, is actually something we think is uh, realistic. And so when we knew that um, when our health reform champions in Congress on different committees uh, told us that they were starting um, private uh, negotiations now, just preliminary negotiations, um, to figure out what this bill should include, we then recognized an opportunity to convene an external group. So this is after I left the Senate. Um, We recognized that if we were going to be successful in pushing a health equity agenda into law and prioritizing um, access to vulnerable populations, we had to get on the bandwagon immediately. We had to start our efforts immediately. And so, you know, when the campaign was going, uh, the campaign between McCain, uh, Hillary and Barack, we recognized um, that there was an opportunity for us to infuse a health equity agenda in all three campaigns and we met with all three campaigns and we said, you know, what are your, your ideas for reforming our healthcare system? How about prioritizing health equity among vulnerable groups? And all three campaigns to a degree says, yes, it was a priority for them. Um, the Clinton campaign and the Barack Obama campaign actually were, um, they said they would go even further. And actually Obama, Obama's campaign went even further in explicitly addressing health equity issues within health reform. And so we were very pleased with that. So after the the campaign and when uh, Barack Obama had won the election, we then uh, met with their transition team. And we said at the time that, you know, during the campaign, your boss has made it very clear that health equity is to be a key component of any health reform, comprehensive health reform negotiations, any bills, uh, policies that are established. So they agreed with us. They worked with us. And at that point, I worked with um, the former First Lady, uh, Rosalind Carter, um, on a children's advocacy piece. She had convened her uh, annual summit, and this one was on children's mental health in Atlanta, Georgia. And at the time, we had uh, done some breakout sessions. and We recognized, gee, after the election, this is a key opportunity for us to promote children's behavioral health equity. And um, and so with that, we started framing a strategy and coming up with tactics. But as we were developing this, we recognized we wouldn't be that successful because we were you know, small in number. The mental health, the behavioral health community, although um, very passionate and um, has been very successful in the past, we couldn't do it alone if we were going to push this agenda. And so we expanded the group and invited others uh, from different provider groups, consumer groups representing different chronic diseases. Um, children, women's groups, um, civil rights, LGBT, people with disabilities to come together around this effort and help us push a robust health equity agenda to the law. And they did. And it first initially started with 35 groups. And then within a matter of weeks, um, the group grew to 200 and then to 300 national organizations saying we agree with the direction that this uh, national working group on health disparities and health reform um, wants to take us. And so that was the name of the um, basically this umbrella group. And um, and together we we were successful in in pushing a a health equity agenda.
1: Now, even after the passage of the law, the the ACA faced numerous hurdles and many of them you talk about in the book. Yes. I wonder if you remember when you were the most distraught. Uh, Did you reach the, the point prior to one of these votes or Supreme Court decisions or what have you when you were convinced all was lost? There was one
0: time. So, you know, in the book, I document the 10 brushes with death that this uh, law has encountered to date. But there was one in particular where, you know, we felt like the the wind had been knocked out of our sails, so to speak. And that was the time when um, Senator Kennedy had died and Scott Brown had won the election. And folks then, you know, primarily Democrats, um, health reform champions in both the um, um, Congress and in the White House, were deliberating whether to continue was this a sign was that election um, a referendum on this uh, particular negotiation and we were concerned that with all the effort that had been put in this i mean almost two years of um, of advocacy that had been put into this and of course 150 years of trying to get this agenda passed we were so concerned when it seemed that health reformers uh, our government champions we're going to just um, pull the plug on this. And I will never forget when uh, uh, Mr. Pollock from Families USA and uh, different health economists and um, the National Partnership for Women and Families and other groups said, wait a second, we can still salvage this. We can still, there is still a way for us to pass this. And um, even though I had privately believed that something was better than nothing, without these thought leaders in healthcare chiming in, You know, I felt as though maybe perhaps um, all hope was going to be lost, but thankfully, that was not the case. They did, and there were several, of course, um, um, strategies that were pushed forth. One was saying, well, maybe we should just focus on the more popular provisions, and again. That did bring us some heartburn because what are those popular provisions in the AC? Did those include the 62 provisions, the health equity provisions that we had advocated for in this law? We weren't sure. But of course, as time went by, we were we're happy again when the White House came back on board and um, and congressional members said, yes, we're going to we're going to pass the uh, Senate bill that had passed back in December.
1: Now, we're just about at the point of talking about the Obama legacy in all sorts of different ways. Have you started to think about what what Obama's health care legacy will be in 20 years from now or or even 150 years <laughs> from now? Will we, will we be celebrating the 300th anniversary of Obamacare? <laughs>
0: I sure hope so. And I'll tell you that um, so far, we all know that this law, despite all the naysayers, despite the opposition, this law is working. We in the history of this country, we now have the lowest uninsured rate ever, from 1963, since we've been recording the insurance rates, we have the lowest at 9.1%. So 20 million people have gained insurance as a result of this. But I am concerned about the cost pieces. And and while folks will say, well, my God, costs continue to um, uh, grow with healthcare expenditures. Well, they've been the slowest since, and we can argue why that's been. But I do believe that the Um, cost issue is one that if we are allowed to implement these delivery and payment system reforms, these reforms that are intended to bend that cost curve, to, to decrease costs in the healthcare system. So you'll, you know, you've heard about accountable care organizations, patient-centered medical homes, bundled payments, and there are different models that we are trying to create right now. So, so first it was increasing access um, increasing coverage for different groups, and we've been successful to a degree. Of course, we need to push for further um, expansion of Medicaid. But with the cost piece, if if the health reform law is given the opportunity to um, to be implemented and implemented well with these reforms, I believe that it will be a huge success moving forward and it will decrease and folks will look back and say, my gosh. This was the right thing to do, even though it might not have been the popular thing at the time. It was the right thing, and it it actually is an economic um, um, and and national security issue. It actually protected our country and continued to make sure that we are a um, competitive nation moving forward.
1: The book is 150 Years of Obamacare, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2016. The author, who you've been hearing from, is Daniel Dawes. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Heath, and thank you so much for this opportunity.